0: Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. Wow, do we have a big day for you today. Buckle your seatbelt, all sorts of breaking news and investigative revelations, and a very important set of interviews. One with Dr. Cecil Staten. He is the head of the largest hotel owners association in America. He's going to talk about what's been going on with the shutdown, the coronavirus shutdown, some extraordinary generosity by hotel owners but also some extraordinary need. He gives a prediction about how much money and how much time the hotel industry is going to need to recover from this pandemic. You are not going to want to miss his predictions and his inside tales of what's been going on in the hotel industry. And then we're going to hear from Dan Hoffman. Yes, the former CIA station chief from Moscow, now free to talk. He's retired from the CIA. He's got some big, big revelations about Russia, about John Brennan, about China, uh, about what he'd like to see the intelligence community to do to fix its earlier assessment about Russia's intentions in the 2016 election. You're not going to want to miss it. It was such a great interview. We're going to break it up into two days. You're going to get the first part today. Tomorrow, we're going to do a special edition of John Solomon Reports to give you a little bit more. Uh, this is one interview you should listen stem to stern. Dan Hoffman, one of the CIA's great Russian spy craft tradecraft experts, He knows exactly what Moscow was up to, and it's very different from what the John Brennan CIA and the James Comey FBI told us. You're going to want to hear it all. But first, let's go to a commercial break and hear from our great sponsors. We'll be right back. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And before we get to these two great interviews, Cecil Staten. Dan Hoffman. One is the former, is the current head of the hotel association that represents hotel owners, and the other is the former station chief for the CIA in Moscow. Two incredible interviews, deep insights, breaking news. You're going to love it. But first, I want to talk about a couple of stories that have broken on the um, Just the News website. They're important. They're stories I've worked on. Others have worked on. I don't want you to miss them. So first up today, very important. Document emerged from the ODNI, the Office of Director of National Intelligence. We have heard for some time, going all the way back to September of 2018, that the Congress, specifically the House Intelligence Committee, tried to declassify and and voted uh, bipartisan nature. Both Democrats and Republicans agreeing. They voted to release the transcripts of 53 witnesses who had testified in the House Intelligence Committee's investigation of Russia collusion or the lack of Russia collusion. Um, That happened back in September 2018. Nineteen months later, none of those documents have been uh, released to the public, and I have the answer why. It turns out Adam Schiff, the Democratic chairman, previously the ranking member, Uh, sent a letter in March 2019 to Odi and I threatening them, warning them, do not under any circumstances, he wrote, share these transcripts with President Trump, White House lawyers, or anyone associated with the president. That put a wrinkle into the declassification process because many of the witnesses needed, uh, their testimony needed to be reviewed by the White House for potential privilege, for potential equities, as they call it, intelligence equities. So 10 of the, of the transcripts were deemed not to be able to be declassified because the White House and Trump were not allowed to see them based on Schiff's direct order to the ODNI. And the other 44, guess what? They were sent to Adam Schiff a while ago, and he's never released them. So despite a bipartisan vote in Congress, despite all the talk that we want transparency, Adam Schiff has many of these transcripts, and he blocked the others from being declassified because he didn't want any helpful evidence to go to Donald Trump or his lawyers to defend themselves against the Robert Mueller report and the other allegations of collusion lodged against the president that's a, a very important story. You can check it out at justthenews.com. It's leading the site right now. I hope you take the time to read it and, and see what it has to say. Second important development, also on the Russia front today, we have uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee has released the fourth volume of its Russia Investigation. Uh, this one defends what is known as the intelligence community assessment, the assessment that concluded that Russia did, in fact, engage in hacking and Facebook purchasing and of ads and other activities designed to meddle in the 2016 election. Uh, the Senate committee, led by Richard Burr of North Carolina, and supported by uh, the Vice Chairman uh, Mark Warner of Virginia, Democrat. Uh, uh, says that the ICA's work, the Intelligence Community Assessment's work about Russia, uh, was well done, that it was free of political pressure, and that it came to mostly the right conclusions. Uh, Most importantly, it goes out of its way, and you're going to know why now because you've been listening to this podcast and reading just the news for a long time now. It goes out of its way, the Senate report does, to say that the CIA intentionally left the Steele dossier out of the... Intelligence community assessment because it thought it was nothing more than this is a sentence words internet rumor, disproven, debunked, false reporting, inaccurate reporting, unproven reporting, internet rumor. That's a great word. Well, at least the CIA knew what it was doing when it tried to keep that uh, information out of the report. Now, as we know, a little bit of the Steele report got pushed into the uh, footnotes or appendixes of the report. It turns out that what the Senate told us today, that was not the CIA's doing. In fact, the CIA didn't want that to happen. But old James Comey and his FBI and his sidekick, Andrew McCabe, forced their way into having that added to the report. We now know why. They were trying to give credibility to something that already in the FBI's own files was being debunked as, you know what it is, Russian disinformation, because we talked about it last week. What, what a tale that the Senate Intelligence Committee gives us today. Now... The third thing I want to talk about is an article that I wrote yesterday in which many uh, or several people I talked to raised the question and called for the intelligence community to take one part of that assessment that it did, the one that the Senate said was so well done, and reevaluate it. And what part is that? That's the part of the assessment that assessed with moderate to high degree of confidence that Russia's intentions when it intervened in the 2016 election by hacking the documents, by buying the Facebook ads, by doing other clandestine activities, was designed to help Donald Trump win and Hillary Clinton lose. Now, that seemed like a fine conclusion uh, to some people many, many moons ago when it was released in January of 2017 as President Barack Obama and his team, James Clapper, uh, John Brennan, uh, were headed out of the door. But, Uh, In retrospect, given the new evidence that's been declassified in recent weeks that showed that the Russians were planting dirt on Donald Trump, feeding it, most of it false dirt, to uh, Christopher Steele in hopes that it would get into the dossier that would get to the FBI and inflame the American public, create dissension between Democrats and Republicans, finger pointing, all of that happened as we now know. That evidence cuts against the conclusion, seems to contradict or conflict with the conclusion that Russia was only trying to help Donald Trump win and Hillary Clinton lose. Now, today in today's podcast, we have Dan Hoffman. He is one of the CIA's Russian spy tradecraft experts, and he says the ICA on that one point is wrong. You can't possibly conclude That Russia was trying to help Donald Trump and hurt Hillary Clinton from the evidence that we now have, and also from the playbook that we knew was Vladimir Putin's from the beginning. And here's why they don't care for Republicans or Democrats at all. In fact, I think Dan Hoffman says in the interview, he hates Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton equally. He says the real reason They intervened was to sow chaos, to create dissension, to have Republicans and Democrats engage in accusations and recriminations. And boy, didn't that happen. He also talks about who some of the aiders and abettors were, including John Brennan, including the news media, including the FBI and James Comey. It's a very powerful interview. This story sets up that interview, gives you some context. If you get a chance, go to justthenews.com. Take a look at that story as well. I think if you read the three, the Senate Intelligence Report, uh, my new report on uh, Adam Schiff and his effort to keep the transcript secret, and uh, the um, analysis I did on the ICA section of the report that says that we should believe that Russia tried to help Donald Trump win and Hillary Clinton lose. I think you have a lot of context to listen to these next couple of interviews. All right, enough of me talking. We're going to go to a commercial break. When we come back, Cecil Staten, the head of the largest hotel owners association in America, in fact, the largest hotel owners association in the world, he joins us, followed by the CIA former CIA station chief, Dan Hoffman, two remarkable interviews, lots of headlines. We'll be right back after these messages from our great advertisers.
1: Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are.
0: All right, everybody. Welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, I have with me today Dr. Cecil Staten. He he is the president and CEO of AAHOA, the largest hotel uh, network of hotel owners in the country. Dr. Staten, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, John. It's great to be with you and uh, you as well. And uh, your your industry, you represent, if I understand correctly, one out of uh, every two hotels in America. Uh, And the lodging industry is in the midst of this incredible shutdown. Can you tell me a little bit about how it's persevering, how many people have lost jobs, and and what's ahead for the industry?
1: Well, uh, thank you for having me today. Um, I am honored to serve as the president of the largest hotel owners association in the United States, but also in the world. We have uh, 20,000 members, and as you say, um, our members uh, represent more than half of all the hotels in the country. Uh, We have had uh, an incredible thing happen in just the last six weeks, eight weeks. Uh, We have gone from a period where we had literally a million unfilled jobs in our industry, a million jobs we could not fill. Uh, We've gone from a time when uh, the economy has been strong and occupancy rates at hotels have been uh, at their highest levels uh, allowing for renovations the building of new hotels investment and then in just a few short weeks we now face a situation where literally millions of workers have been furloughed or are now unemployed we estimate it could be as many as 4 million as of today wow 4 million uh, really? and we are seeing hotels Yeah, yeah we are seeing hotels literally shuttered uh, occupancy rates going from above 70% to a single digits, And so uh, really and truly, uh, our, our owners uh, have found themselves in just a matter of weeks facing an enormous liquidity crisis. They're small business people. Most of them operate hotels as franchisees of the brand. You walk into the hotel, it may say uh, a big-name brand, but the hotel is actually owned and operated by I like to refer to them as Joe Hotelier in the local community. (laughs) Uh, They've made their investment. They've gone out and made the loan on the building, and they employ people. They have a great impact upon their local economies. They pay a lot of taxes. But today, uh, many of them are forced to close. And, and John, here's the point I I try to get across. You know, most business people, and our members are great business uh, men and women, Most of them plan. They have contingencies. They can prepare for a month or two or three months. But no one prepares for the economy to be shut down. Nobody can prepare to go to occupancy rates in the single digits. Even after the 2008 financial crisis, occupancy rates never fell much below 50%. Today, they're in the single digits. No one can really prepare for that with travel absolutely coming to a halt. In our country, so they're in a world of hurt, and it's really just like any small business: how do you keep the lights on? How do you make your payroll, and how do you make your mortgage payment at the end of the month?
0: Yeah, no, and the the tragic part about this is that this hit right as the high travel months were about to begin: right April, May, June. People are really uh, getting into the into the spring and summer tourism season. What does this uh, tourism season look like now? How how many millions or billions of dollars? Uh, could be lost uh, from the lodging industry during this window?
1: Well, we estimate that every day hoteliers across America are losing about a half a billion dollars in room revenue every day. So that's three and a half billion dollars per week. Wow. Uh, so you multiply this by however long it's going to last. And that's the dramatic impact it is having upon uh, economics of, of being in this business, the communities they're in, the employees who are being furloughed and laid off. Um, it, it, it's really, uh, it's really unbelievable, but it is a huge economic impact. I, I will tell you, John, one of the things that's often said about the hotel industry, we are a signal um, uh, in in the U.S. economy. We're, we're sort of an indicator of of things, right. We are usually the first to be harmed, and we are often the last to recover. And that's the real issue for us. Uh, even if the economy uh, gets going again at some point this summer, uh, we know it's going to take months for the, there to really be a recovery for our industry. Normally, we're, we're estimating it'll be six to nine months before occupancy rates begin to return to normal. But it could be literally 18 to 24 months before revenues return because there'll be a lot of discounting in the short term in order to get the occupancy rates back up. Uh, they'll have to do that. But as you can understand, if you're used to $100 a night for a room and you're having to discount your rate to $50 in order to fill your bed, um, you know your revenue is still going to be half of what it was. So it's going to take a while for this industry to recover.
0: It, it's remarkable the numbers you just gave us, right? Four million lost jobs uh, and $15 billion a month in lost revenue already. That that Those are staggering numbers. Um, now, Congress has tried to help in, in some degree, right? They passed the PPP and some other relief efforts. How is the hotel industry using that, and is it helping enough to survive? Is there more need uh, to uh, inject more cash in from the U.S. government to keep this industry ready for the moment when we flip the switch back on and people want
1: to start traveling again? Well, it's a great question. Obviously, we were very grateful when Congress uh, came together and passed the CARES Act, including the PPP loans, uh, which obviously ran out of money uh, the end of last week. Uh, and maybe reauthorized here in the coming days but um, yeah it, it, it was helpful i think the difficulty is again the ppp loans were really uh, about really supplying about eight to ten weeks uh, of revenue in order to retain uh, employees uh, i think the loans in order to become grants, 75 percent of the funds had to be spent on employees, retaining employees. And so we're very grateful for that. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, I really, really believe uh, it is not going to be sufficient to deal with the liquidity crisis of our industry. And I am very concerned uh, that a lot of our owners are, are not going to feel like they can really do this. I mean, very few people are going to borrow money. Very few business people will borrow money to keep employees on the payroll and there's nothing nothing for them to do. There's no business, right? They can't even make their mortgage payments. So I fear uh, you know it, it is not enough. It, 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 in my view is a little bit of a band-aid, but the problem for our industry is far more severe for the reasons I've already stated being a signal industry, it's just going to take a longer time for us to recovery. I don't think anyone thinks that by mid-May, when the PPP original loans would run out. I don't think anyone that I know would say to me, yes, travel is going to be back by the middle of May. I don't think it's going to be back for months after that. So we've certainly lobbied uh, members of Congress to consider uh, not only uh, providing additional funds for these PPP loans, but to extend them for a longer period of time and to allow small businesses across the country to use them things in addition to payroll. Yes, they want to hold on to their staff because they're going to need them when travel resumes. And as I stated earlier, we had actually a million unfilled jobs literally two months ago. So we are concerned about that. But I really do think this Band-Aid approach uh, probably does not take into consideration the severity of this problem for this industry. And here's the bottom line, John. At the end of this, we want hoteliers to be there, to be able to pick up the pieces and resume their businesses and participate in the recovery. But if someone has lost their hotel in foreclosure uh, after three or four months, uh, and you know, I, I am really concerned that the communities of this country are going to be littered with the carcasses of small businesses that have failed. Mm. And if, if we let that happen, then the recovery for our country and our economy is going to take so much longer than it would if we made the investment today on the front end and uh, help small businesses keep their doors open, uh, keep things going until we can get the economy's engine revved up again, um, as, as we all hope and want it to uh, to be in, in as, as quickly as possible.
0: When you um, you look out over the horizon and you talk about the liquidity crisis, is there a number that the hotel industry has that says, this is a number that will get us through the crisis. It'll make sure that we don't default, that we keep our workers in place. Do you have a number in mind that you've shared with Congress or the administration to try to um, get the industry to a point where it can turn its lights back on and really start serving the public when, when people get back to traveling?
1: Well... Uh, it is very difficult uh, to, to put it into a you know a number that's going to solve every problem and, and candidly we know that there are limits as to what can be done well sure. so the way I'd rather put it and, and we'll let the, uh, the, the folks who do the, the numbers work it out, but we would very much like for them to extend the PP loans for several additional months. Um, basically originally it was calculated at two and a half times. Uh, your average monthly uh, payroll. So two and a half times, again, that's going to get you about eight to 10 weeks. We'd like to see that extended out. I would love to see it extended out at least six months. So if you do the calculations on um, what was originally in the PPP, what they're talking about, adding to it, I think that's going to get it up to about $600 million. But I really... Uh, $600 billion, but I really do think that number would probably have to double in order to have the impact that I think we really want to have. I mean, look, we can make the investment on the front end or we can pay for it over a longer period of time with unemployment, uh, with the failures of businesses and the ripple effects of that. I mean, by the way, our loans on many of our hotels that our members own and operate are in the securities market. Uh, they're called CMBS loans, right. and they are sold to insurance companies and pension funds. And so, if these businesses fail, think about the values of, of the pension uh, of a firefighter or a school teacher in, in certain states that own these securities in those pension funds. Yeah, the down and, downstream effect is enormous. Yeah. So, my point is, it can be a big number. I don't care if it's a trillion dollars. Uh, whatever it is, it's better to do it today than to have 22 million people. I think is where we are today with unemployment, right. and millions of those are in the hospitality industry. And I've just talked about hotels and restaurants to that, and uh, other aspects of the hospitality industry to that. Uh, some uh, have said to me that really half of unemployment is now tied to the hospitality industry. If you want to have jobs for those people sooner rather than later, then we've got to help these businesses survive. And so it's a better investment to do it today. And that's why we're asking Congress to act and to consider uh, the implications of this and to really remove some of the bureaucratic hurdles. I mean, we still have a lot of members who haven't been funded in the first round of PPP. So here they are three three weeks, four weeks after this was even launched, and they've yet to get the funds. So we've got to get rid of some of these bureaucratic snafus and hurdles that are out there that we've been hearing about and that we hear about every day from our members who really haven't even gotten anything yet. But they're holding on. They're trying to hold on. And I think it's better to make the investment today than to have the lasting and longer-term negative impact on our economy. And when you look at, uh, when you, you're talking about a billion,
0: uh, sorry, a trillion, a trillion two, 1.2 trillion, uh, that would be for right. all small businesses, including the hotel and restaurant industry, right? Is that a number that you're you're looking at? Is it the total PPP or is that just for the hotel industry?
1: No, I, I think we would be very pleased to see uh, that kind of expansion of the program. I think that would, be uh, monumentally helpful in allowing small business people to keep their doors open to be able to make those mortgage payments for a few months and to hold on to their employees. I I think uh, that's the kind of investment we hope uh, that can be made.
0: And for the hotel industry, you're really looking at a six-month drag, right? A period of six months where you have to um, uh, get through a shutdown and a slow wind back up before we get back to life as normal. Is that, is that sort of the current planning
1: that these hoteliers have? I think that's a minimum given the data that we have uh, and, and knowing, I mean, we can go back and look at what happened after nine right. 11. We can go back and look at what happened after 2008. We've weathered recessions before, but there is nothing like this. And so the, these, Uh, are, are I think, minimums to help small businesses across this country have hope, hold on, uh, try to maintain employees as best they can, bring them back as they gradually get their businesses opened uh, over the next several months. We just cannot assume, no one can assume that you're going to flip the switch on the economy and that everything is going back to normal. The minute you do that, it's not going to happen. It's going to take time, and I think six months is a reasonable uh, is a reasonable expectation. And I think one at which the investment that we are asking to be made will pay incredible dividends on helping the economy. Uh, when we're picking up the pieces and trying to get this thing going again. Well that's a that's a really great insight
0: and and as we we listen to our politicians and our political leaders, policymakers talk about this, um, we've got to be focusing on a longer period of time than time than what uh, what um, we've been talking about in the media and in the policy circle so far. Certainly that's the takeaway I have from this. let me um, <clears throat> let me ask you about this because this is a part that goes underreported, but the lodging industry has been unbelievably active behind the scenes in supporting relief efforts during this pandemic, right? You're giving free rooms to medical personnel, college students who are displaced from their campuses, homeless um, folks who don't have a place on the street to be safe. uh, Can you talk a little bit about what all your hotel owners are doing to help in that part of the fight and how long they can sustain that under the current circumstances?
1: Well, such a great question. There's so many untold stories that I hope will come out eventually. I'm privileged every day to be on the phone with hoteliers across America, and the the stories are really, uh, well, they touch my heart. Uh, I've talked to hoteliers who have put up college students who were displaced, and uh, they were actually international students, had no place to go, and they put them up free of charge. Obviously, now more than 15,000 hotels across the country have participated in a program that allows first responders who need to be near hospitals or near places where they're serving uh, to be staying in their hotels uh, free of charge. Uh, they they told me, you know, look, I'm just keeping it at minimal cost, but this is the right thing to do. We want to participate. We want to help. Hoteliers are local business people. They uh, may be a franchisee of a major name brand. But at the heart, they are in their communities. Their public service uh, is uh, remarkable. They participate in local philanthropy in their communities, and they want to be a part of the solution to this. So I applaud them, and that's a wonderful part of this story that is yet to be told
0: it is remarkable and i remember when i first came to washington there was a senator who said um america's greatest side is always shown when it's facing its greatest challenge and when you hear the amazing things that our hotel owners have done to pitch in uh it it reminds me of that uh that great prediction from from that senator so dr cecil staten uh president ceo of the aahoa the largest Hotel Owners Association, not only in America, but in the world. Thank you for joining us and sharing these insights. We're going to be watching what Congress does to help your industry over the next few weeks. Thank you so much, John. All right, folks, when we come back from the commercial break, Dan Hoffman, the former CIA station chief in Moscow, is going to talk about all things Russia and China and other great events going on in the world. You're not going to want to miss this. Come right back.
2: Okay, it's time to commit. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
0: All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest, Daniel Hoffman, the former CIA station chief in Moscow and one of the intelligence committee's great experts. Dan, thanks for joining us today.
2: Hey, it's always a, a real pleasure and an honor to, uh, to join you.
0: Uh, same here. Well, there's so much going on in the world today, but I thought uh, before we got started with the issues of the day, could you just, uh, to our listeners, you've had an incredible storied career in the CIA and uh, done a lot of really important things. Could you just talk a little bit about your background, your experience in the CIA, some of the places you landed that you could talk about?
2: Yeah, sure. I uh, retired from CIA three years ago and uh, had a long, decades-long career there. You know, Before 9-11, my focus was on Russia. Um we thought the seminal moment of our careers my generation at least would be the collapse of the Soviet Union so i kind of rushed to that and i served in places like finland estonia and and in moscow but then after 911 my life completely changed and that's why i went off to iraq uh, i ran the cia's middle east division and i also served in uh, in pakistan so along the way i got to learn you know estonian russian finnish and urdu which was great and uh, and serve my country you know it was uh, when I was young, in my in my teens and early 20s, I was looking for something to do that would offer me the chance to to serve, and uh, that was what I chose. and And I was really thankful for having had the opportunity, and uh, and it was just a real honor to to have had that uh, that career at CIA.
0: Well, we're lucky to have you served our country too. I know lots of people that have worked alongside of you, and I, I've had the benefit of learning from your wisdom over the years. But um, you're you're a great patriot in our country; owes you a great debt. Um, Let's start with some of the news today because um, uh, you have a, a lot of visibility on how we deal with things like the rumors that um, uh, the North Korean leader, Kim, is, is gravely ill. And, of course, we have to be careful because North Korea is such a difficult place to get real actionable intelligence on in real time. Um, how would the intelligence community today – first, what do you assess of these rumors? And then secondly, um, what, how does the intelligence community go about assessing something like uh, this rumor that, that Kim is sick?
2: So the rumors themselves are really helpful, because the more we talk about it publicly, the more press coverage we have, the, the the brighter the spotlight on Kim Jong-un. So where is he? Why isn't he out showing himself? There's a lot of pressure on him, starting in his own region from, from South Korea, and he still isn't showing himself, and one would have to assume that he is unable to do so. Uh, the CIA has uh, a group of folks, leadership analysts, and this is what they do. Um, They track foreign leaders and they collect all source intelligence on those people. So that would be human intelligence, people close to a leader like Kim Jong-un. Very hard to do, but not impossible. Um, Signals intelligence and everything you possibly could imagine about um, what we might be able to collect on him from open source information. You know, there have been a lot of meetings with Kim Jong-un. Three summits, um, which have been very, very valuable opportunities to collect on him. He's reportedly about you know five foot eight and three hundred pounds, so he's not the healthiest guy. He's a he's a heavy smoker, and so it's certainly reasonable to think that he's got some medical problems. And we've got analysts at, at CIA and throughout the intelligence community who specialize in tracking leaders, and also uh, doctors and others who can assess whether somebody's healthy or not just by looking at them in terms of how they are on television or in the case of you know in our case we the president has met with kim jong-un multiple times and his team has met with him and that gives us also another window into into kim jong-un's health it's so important to understand because he is um you know the one who who is responsible i mean he's the dictator of north korea when how he goes is how a lot of those you know their nuclear program and ballistic missile program is going to go and so we have to be very wary of uh of what might happen if, if he were so infirm that he could not govern or if he were to die.
0: And do you have any sense of who would be next in line uh, should, should he be incapacitated for a short period or a long period of time?
2: You know, there's been some talk that his sister has been you know, elevated to such a position that she might be the one, though I wonder how Kim Jong-un's own military would respond to that. I think the question here, this is an unanticipated, if it were to happen that he dies, it's an unanticipated um, change in the regime. And typically, brittle autocracies like North Koreas, they don't react too well in this kind of situation. Um, there doesn't really appear to be a natural heir. Maybe there would be a regent like Kim Jong- Un's sister. But there's going to be a lot of um, a lot of challenge for that for that hermit kingdom going forward. As far as who the next one is in line, that's absolutely a critical question in our intelligence community. I'm sure is being asked and trying to answer at this very moment to um, the president of the United States.
0: Yeah, no, it, it clearly is, and getting getting the best read and then being able to get the best policy prescriptions is going to be the the challenge for for the people surrounding the president right now. Um, I want to go to uh, the place you're really well familiar with, uh, Russia and Moscow, because. Um, long before most, most of my industry and long before most of the world understood that the Steele dossier wasn't what we thought it was, that it was uh, Russian disinformation and misinformation and a political document uh, with a lot of false allegations in it. You saw it for what it was because of your expertise in, in Russian spy tradecraft. And um, a lot of people are now starting to credit the, the wisdom that you've uh, bestowed uh, much earlier in the process. And I, I want to ask you, how did you get it so right? I mean, how did you know that the Steele dossier was being used by Russia to inject a false information? And how did our intelligence community and our congressional oversight committees get it so wrong?
2: Well, uh, so the first thing about the Steele so-called dossier, I mean, dossier is such a, a word I wouldn't use for what he did. He wrote 17 reports. Um, and their raw information that is, uh, as you said, pretty shoddy work on his part. But I will tell you, the the first thing that drew me to it um, after I retired from CIA, and I'm thinking myself about what I want to do with my career, and I'm seeing this guy, retired MI6, British intelligence officer, who had worked on Russia and lived there in the early 90s, um, and he's involved in our politics, and I thought, How could someone do that? I mean the last thing I would ever do is go work for the Labor Party in Great Britain against the the Tories, the conservatives. I mean that's just a disgusting, um, immoral interference in our election and our internal politics. So I I found that to be so strange, so odd, and so I I looked into it, and what concerned me was that uh, it's information from inside Russia. Uh, of the sort he was trying to get. Opposition research. This might be the the worst kind of opposition research anybody's ever obtained, but very hard to do it inside Russia. And I know this from experience because I served there many years. Um, And so I felt that based on what he was doing, based on the fact that the Democratic National Committee had been hacked, that Russia knew all about it. And we now know from the footnotes that have been redacted, uh, that have been uh, revealed from the Horowitz report that Russian intelligence was on to steal. And I felt like that, based on my experience, what the Russians do is not expose uh, something like this when they detect it, it's to use it to their advantage and turn it back against us. So here they see this MI6 officer, Christopher Steele, with some gravitas. Why not seed disinformation and sow greater discord in our political process as a result? So the Russians played this very well. It was extraordinarily inexpensive for them to do it. What was disconcerting to me is that Steele, for one, wrote this. He should have known that it wasn't possible to do this without the Russians knowing. Um, And then that our intelligence community didn't do anything about it. And I, I frankly blame the FBI a lot less than I blame the CIA because, and, and specifically John Brennan, because understanding Russia, Russia, it, that's really over to the Central Intelligence Agency, our Russia analysts. And I just can't believe that John Brennan didn't bring this dossier, so-called dossier, to our team at CIA and say, hey, look, take a look at this, look at his sources, uh, and tell me what you think. Is any of this possibly true or not true? Um, the, the problem is that the when the president was briefed on the steel uh, reporting in January of 2017, it was Director Clap, uh, Director uh, Comey who did it, and the intelligence community didn't weigh in on whether it was true or not true. They didn't even offer an analytical judgment. Usually we say we have a high or medium or low level of confidence. They didn't do that. And that's an extraordinary dereliction of duty because Steele had already leaked it to Mother Jones. It's out in the public. It has done already exactly what Vladimir Putin wanted it to do, which was to be uh, you know, fodder in our, um, you know, political meat grinder. So I'm sorry to go on on this one, but it is it is a massive self-inflicted wound on our part. And we're still to this day paying the price.
0: And, uh, you know, you flagged something that I didn't uh, pay attention to closely enough in in the TikTok. uh, But you're right. The CIA normally would offer its assessment alongside of the FBI, during that presidential briefing, and you, you noted it didn't, was there silence, perhaps a warning sign that what was going on may, may have been a ruse?
2: I don't know why John Brennan didn't say something to President then-president-elect Trump, number one. Number two, I don't know why Director Clapper didn't make a public statement a little more forceful about Steele's reporting. Um, now, Steele was a reporting source of the FBI. That's an issue. He was biased. Let's remember that that he was so strongly opposed to, to then-candidate President Trump, he didn't want him to be elected, and he felt like he needed to do something about it. That's what drove him. So when we're right. running sources, we always look to see, does our source have a bias? Are they telling us something that, they, that, that is in their interest, in other words? We at, at CIA, our best analysts are dispassionate. We don't have predisposed views. I like to think of myself as that sort of person. Even though I was on the operational side, stealing the secrets um, and recruiting spies, something John Brennan liked to say we didn't do, but we actually do. Um, But that's another topic for another day. Um, But our analysts are dispassionate, and that's not what Chris Steele was being, obviously. Um, He had an ax to grind, and he was out there to do just that. And. We allowed that, you know, kind of that virus to be to be infected into our into our political process, and I I really think there was so much more that we could have done. Um, The president has said some things about our own intelligence community that people find uh, some in the intelligence community even abhorrent, you know. But talk about getting off on the wrong foot with with Brennan and Clapper and Comey. uh, That was a horrifically bad start with a president who hadn't had any experience really working at all with the intelligence community.
0: Yeah, no, that bond of trust got off to a very, very shaky uh, a start. Um, one of the things that I enjoy about your writings and your appearances on TV is the um, the analytical assessment of how you you look at Russian spying and their tradecraft and how different the media and, quite frankly, the political public uh, 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 gauges it because everyone expects it's a very linear line. They did this because therefore they were trying to do why. And in fact, it's right. much more cat and mouse. And you wrote a column a couple of years ago at the Hill when I was there that I thought was one of the most important columns of the last two years on this issue where you assessed the Trump Tower meeting, the famous meeting where a Russian yeah. lawyer comes in to meet with Don Jr. Could you tell folks or remind folks of what, that, what you wrote there and how prescient that has turned out to be as well?
2: Yeah, so the the two things I wrote, you know, that I felt very, very strongly about, and I felt that our media was getting way wrong on, on President Trump and, and the campaign, um, were first the Steele dossier. We've been through that. I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal about that, January 2018, and then I wrote a piece in, in actually the New York Times in July of 2017, uh, in which I said, look, the, the Trump Tower is not collusion. That's not what it was all about. Um, No one goes to Trump Tower for a clandestine meeting. There's lots of security (laughs) there. Um, You've got to go through lots of security. They sent three Russians, with one of whom, Natalia Veselnitskaya, um, was a lawyer for the Russian security police, the FSB. So those are high-profile people. It was all started with an email from a British publicist. Um, Again, not the way you start a clandestine operation. What Vladimir Putin was doing, and the point I made in that piece in The Hill, Vladimir Putin's messing with our democracy and he wants us to know it. He hates Republicans. I guarantee you, all the listeners, Vladimir Putin hates Donald Trump just as much as he hates anybody else in our country. Um, He just finds different ways to target him. And in the case of the Trump Tower meeting, that was kind of a poison pill. He wanted to make it – Putin wanted to make it appear like there was something nefarious when there wasn't because he knew that Democrats would criticize the president for it. The president would say, I didn't do anything wrong. There wasn't anything that happened here that was untoward, and there wasn't. Um, And then you'd have them fighting with each other, which is Putin's goal. Vladimir Putin – lots of people ask the question, was Russia trying to interfere on behalf of one candidate or the other? That – that's a superfluous question. Um, They weren't. Uh, and, And our own report from the Director of National Intelligence, January 2017, shows that we could never determine the impact, if any, that Russia made. But Vladimir Putin just wants to influence the dialogue. He wants Democrats and Republicans at each other's throats, and that's what he got. When you accuse President Trump of something he didn't do, He's going to respond as he did, and rightly so. Um, and then you get both sides fighting with each other and, and unable to do other things as collateral damage. And Vladimir Putin, what scares him the most is democracy, um, and he feels like that his own opposition derives inspiration from our country, from the United States, everything that's enshrined in the Constitution and Bill of Rights. So he wants to take us down a notch. This is how he does it.
0: Well, it's uh, it is remarkable and uh, you look at I know a lot of people have criticized the media coverage of this but you look at those columns that you wrote for the Wall Street Journal the Washington Times uh, the Hill they have aged remarkably well and at the time they were running against the tide of of a lot of media coverage that was suggesting that this was preposterous but at the end of the day um, your your knowledge of, of the Russian trade craft really really educated us and got us to a point where we could we could talk about this and have an honest conversation mm-hmm. If you are sitting there today and you're the DNI or the CIA director, um, do you believe it's time for the intelligence community to go back and reassess that part of the assessment? I mean, there's parts of it that everybody agrees on, right? Uh, There was some hacking. There was some Facebook intervention. But the part about who Russia was trying to help and who they were trying to hurt in the election— Would that be in the the public's interest, the nation's interest to reassess that based on what we now know?
2: It would, in my opinion. what I've always said is this, and this is a nuance that's going to be, sometimes I think it's lost uh, in the translation sometimes. But look, um, there were Russian bots, uh, Russian ads on Facebook and other things that were designed to drive us into extremes on both ends of the spectrum first. Secondly, yes, there were some Russian support for President Trump's campaign. But remember, that was all discoverable. In other words, easily discoverable, just like the Trump Tower meeting, uh, you know, breadcrumbs leading back to the Kremlin. So if Vladimir Putin is supposedly wants us to think he's helping President Trump, he's allowing us to know it. I know this is probably a lot maybe for some people to, to grasp in some ways who aren't, you know, been reading about Russia for their whole lives, and that's the challenge for us, but it, that's how Vladimir Putin hurts us. Um, at the end of the day, I don't think Russia influenced the outcome of the election at all, and whatever support that they may have appeared to have given then-candidate Trump, it was discoverable. In other words, Putin wanted us to know it, and he knew that was the best way for Democrats and Republicans to get at each other's throats as a result. Trust me, Vladimir Putin hates President Trump as much as he hates Pre- Secretary Clinton. There's no difference there. It's just the tactics in targeting both of them. So to get to your point, I agree 100%. I would like to see um, you know, a, a ground from zero based uh, analysis of this, maybe bring in some folks um, who are Russia experts you know, to take a look at it and offer their assessment and then open it up to our public because at the end of the day, our citizens, you know, I think need to know what was going on. That's how we best defend ourselves.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point. And um, the tactic that you described, discoverable intelligence operation, that's a tactic I hadn't heard of until I had the pleasure of meeting you. But uh, the sophistication of setting a breadcrumb trail, so we discover it, we create debate, we get all up in arms about it, and then we achieve Putin's goal, because the whole goal was to create the debate and create the distrust among each other. That's really what happened here, right? That's what a discoverable intelligence operation- That's
2: what operation- happened. I mean, Vladimir, Vladimir Putin has three, essentially, ways to to hammer us. One is the overt way. So you can watch Russia today or listen to Sputnik radio. That's just the Kremlin's propaganda. The second one is these discoverable influence operations, things that were meant to be discovered. Russians bought ads on Facebook with rubles. Uh, Putin used the Internet Research Agency to hack into uh, Democratic uh, – hack into the um, – into our uh, election, You know, uh, the D- Democratic National Committee. Again, he used his own – chef to do that. Uh he could have used his intelligence services but he didn't. He wanted breadcrumbs leading back to the Kremlin because that's the best way to soil our democracy. Uh he could have the third way that they operate and this is the way that no one is going to see unless we have a a source uh who tells us what's going on is are the real secret operations and I know those because I've seen them. A good example are the Russian illegals who were operating in the United States for over a decade, whom we arrested and in Anna June Chapman 2010, really, right? the most infamous of whom was Anna Chapman. That was secret stuff they didn't want us to know. And I told – I remember I was on an interview with CNN before I signed with Fox exclusively, and I told a former Fox anchor, Allison Camerata. I said, look, with all due respect, if you could find it, uh, unless the intelligence community um, told you about it, it was kind of meant to be found. The Russians – want you to find this and they're going to allow you to serve their interests. You know, one last point, Vladimir Putin was a KGB, um, was in the KGB. That's a formative experience. But the other one, he was a black belt in judo. He wants to use an opponent's strength against them. So imagine a small guy like Vladimir Putin being able to defeat a bigger person like you, John, because his technique is great. Well, he's using our strength. That's freedom of the press against us. We're doing the work for him, you know? And so, um, To get it right, we need to get the facts out. And I think that gets back to your other point about, you know, um, about allowing our citizens, you know, to understand more about what really went on here.
0: All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports, that podcast from Just the News that you keep tuning into. And I'm so grateful you do. Uh, We're going to be back tomorrow with a special edition because you're going to want to hear part two of my interview with Dan Hoffman, the former CIA station chief in moscow one of the cia's premier russia tradecraft experts he also knows a lot about the middle east about china about north korea uh, he's going to bring us some other insights tomorrow including his assessment of john brennan's leadership at the cia and uh, a look about how the pandemic may change u.s china and western countries and china's relations for a long time to come you're not going to want to miss either so we'll be back tomorrow in the meantime Anything you do to support our sponsors, our advertisers, is greatly appreciated. It allows us to do not only the show, but the sort of reporting that you've come to expect from JustTheNews.com. So please uh, do what you can. Buy, support our small businesses, our our, uh, sponsors, our advertisers. We're so blessed to have them. And one way you can reward us is by rewarding them. Until next time, I'm John Solomon. You're listening to John Solomon Reports at JustTheNews.com.